All right, so good morning. We uh, want to welcome you. If you're, if you're joining us online this morning, and maybe you're new this morning, maybe you're new either gathering with us or online, we, we are grateful that you ch- chose to uh, join us this morning. Um, we're grateful that we have the ability to be able to kind of uh, connect uh, online, um, and we hope to see you soon. We really look forward to the day when we're past a lot of this stuff, and we can gather without any worries, and, and those who even have special concerns uh, can join us again um, face-to-face. So we are just uh, thankful for all that God is doing in our lives and, and, and wants to do uh, through our lives. And so we've been talking about social uh, dilemmas. We've been talking about social subjects, things that the whole world is talking about anyway. And the church has to, we have to have these conversations. And the reason is, is again, that the whole world is, is actually talking and engaging in these conversations. And so we need to know, we've got to hear, what does God have to say in this arena? And before we start today, we're going to talk about life. And we're going to talk about the idea and the concept of life. We're going to talk about what God's word has to say about life. And so obviously in a social context, we're going to deal with things. We're going to talk about uh, the issue of life. We're going to talk about abortion and we're going to talk about that debate. Before we get started, I do want to start with just a disclaimer that says this, that says we understand and know, and I fully know that the reality of it is, is that we are in the presence of, and certainly online and in a bigger presence, that, that there are folks here who have had that as, as, as a part of their lives. It's, it, it's maybe a, a, a place of, of pain and a place of difficulty. And so I never want to stand up here and stand like, I, I, like I'm not empathetic, like I don't get it. I understand fully that there's a, there's a degree of difficulty in life. And, and sometimes at times life comes flooding down on, in, on people and, and things happen and, and decisions are made. And I just want to encourage everyone out there to, to just tell you that we aren't here to condemn anyone. We're not here to pass judgment on anyone. That certainly isn't who we are nor who we want to be. What we want to be about is we want to bring life. We want to be life-giving in our pursuit of this. And we want to remind everyone that there is a Savior out there. There's a Redeemer who takes what is broken, who returns beauty for ashes, a God who has said that he will work all things for the good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And so we believe in the old being made new. We believe in regeneration. We believe that God can take all of our brokenness and he can hand it back to us in a place of of renewed dignity, a place of renewed life, and he can even use our shortcomings, and he does use my own shortcomings as a place of strength to minister to other people, to love on other people, and to do this. And so as Christians, if you happen to stand on the other side of this issue, and you stand there as a Pharisee, then I challenge you today to take the log out of your own eye, to examine your own sin in your own life, to recognize that we all fall short in this picture when compared against the perfection of God, that none of us are worthy, none of us are right before God on our own, and we all stand in desperate need of a Savior. So this is how we want to approach these issues, and we are going to continue to approach some difficult issues week by week, but we want to do it in a loving and kind way. We want to do it in a way which we are extending grace. And so we're going to start out with this idea of you. You have the, you have life. You've been given life. You've been given a life by a good and gracious creator. 
And, and so when we start and we, we, we look into this, it's pretty important to start to understand where, where does the rest of the world stand on this issue? And maybe even more importantly for us as believers, it's very important to, that people understand why we stand where we do. And it's also important to understand why other people stand in the places that they, they stand in. Basically, what we really are dealing with um, at the front end of this issue of life is origins. It becomes a place of origins. Where do we begin? Where do we believe that life began? Where do we believe that this all happened? Do we believe that, that God is, is a creator God who has created each of us uniquely, who has positioned us uniquely, who has brought us right into the perfect time and space uh, place and, and given us life and given us purpose there? Or is our place of origins just one of random process? one of just evolutionary, we're just an evolutionary byproduct that we just happen to be, that we're really just kind of originated out of a puddle of sludge, and we weren't really human until we had hit a certain developmental kind of a place, and that's when we really became human. Or do we believe as Christians that God created man in his own image? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the Bible is just plain. The Bible is very plain that says that you are a unique creation of God. And part of that, that unique creation of you is that you are an image bearer of God himself, that you are created imago Deo in the very image of God, that God created us as a reflection of who he is. And, and we are intended in our lives to glorify him in all that we do, to make him known, to make him famous. You are uniquely you. And so we start this whole idea as we're kind of entering into this with this idea of like Isaiah 64, 8, where it says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the, our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. And so, so we believe as Christians fundamentally that we are created in God's image, that you are uniquely created by God. And that you're created not randomly and not for just random purposes, but that God has meaning and purpose in each life here. That he's created you uniquely you. You're, you're, you and, and we struggle with this idea because we feel like, oh, if I just had this or I was just like that or I looked this way or I didn't have that or if I possessed and, and God is like, no, I made you like you are and I made you just perfect. And so let's, we're gonna start from that position and what this is right here, we wanna look sometimes, we, you know, science and faith are not totally at odds. As a matter of fact, science started out as the pursuit of this idea of what does this look like and, and, and what has God done and how does God operate in the world around us? And so this right here is a picture of a human conception. That's crazy that we can even have this picture, but this is the picture of a human conception taken with a micro, super, crazy uh, microscope, and, and that yellow around that is a burst of energy. It's light that is emitted at this very point in which conception happens. And so conception is this amazing thing that happens. And at conception, here is the science behind this. It, it, it says that you received half of your mom's DNA and half of your, your dad's DNA and their genome. And those two were combined together. And there were some random processes that went into that whole 
uh, puzzle that makes even brothers and sisters unique to one another. But at that moment, your genome was created and a completely new and unique genome that had never existed before and never will exist again exists within you. It's the story of who you are. And, and what a crazy thing was at this time. Now, now think about this. I want to go back to Genesis, and I want to give you something really profound. God, when he spoke of marriage and he spoke of part of the purposes of marriage, he said this. He said that two would become one, right? And, and I know that, we, you know, we look at that and we're like, well, of course, we, I become one with my wife. With Anna and I are one, and we're, we're one in heart, and we're one in mission, and, and, and we're together, and we're, we're, we're bonded together in, in, in our covenant of marriage. But how profound is it that we can look at that now and we can realize that literally two become one. Those two cells each meet together and fuse into a completely new and unique cell. And a new life is begun. And you see, a new identity is imprinted in that very cell at that time. And, and one of the things about God is that God says you are who you are because of your identity, not because of what you do. None of us are our actions, thank God, right? We're not our actions. We're not who we've been. And God has never said you are by who you are. You're, you're good by how good you've been. You're, you're, you're bad by how bad you've been. No, it doesn't work that way. God says you are who you are according to your identity, and part of that identity that lives within us is that idea, that conception that we were born in the very uh, image of God. Your genome is the instruction book to build you. And in that story, in that cell, are now 3,000 pairs of, 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 of these chromosomes, this, this idea that is going to set out to build you. And, and in the information, look at this. This is crazy. There are three billion letters in that story of you. If we were to stretch it out and we were to write it out, it would be 5,592 miles long. It would take a typist working eight hours a day, half a century, to type out the book of you, it would fill 1 million pages, 5,000 books stacked to 200 feet, or 200 telephone directories, not the Sheridan one, the big ones that the strong guys rip in half. It would take uh, 200 of those. If you read it aloud 24 hours a day, listen to this, it would take a whole century to read the story of you. The human body has 100 trillion cells, and each one of these contains a copy of that entire genome. It would stretch to the moon and back like 3,000 times or something crazy like that if you stretched it all out. It is the genetic code. It's the entire list of these 3 billion letters. It is required to create a human being, and these instructions are encoded in our DNA, and there are four characters in this DNA. What a crazy thing. There are, there are four, and four is so often in the Bible associated with the, with the concept of creation. As a matter of fact, God was done creating his material creation on day four and began then to bring about life. 
Um, there are four seasons, there are four directions, there's all kinds of fours. There are four living creatures that proclaim the glory of God. There are all kinds of fours that, that, that deal with this idea. And in this code, in this story, this, this, this code of four, A, C, G, and T, it carries out the code to, to build you. It's, the, the, the meaning of it is found in the sequencing of these letters, but there are just four of them. And each person on earth shares 99.9% of the same genetic material. So there's this incredible unity and an incredible diversity all at the same time. Again, it's, it's, the, it's the reflection of the Godhead. It's the reflection of this three-in-one God that says that he is diverse, he represents diversity, yet unity all at the same time. You know what? You have unique footprints. You have unique fingerprints, right? You have to be careful where you, if you're doing the wrong thing, where you leave those fingerprints, right? Because they uniquely identify you as to somebody who is completely different than anybody else on the face of the earth. You know what else? Your tongue is different than anybody else's tongue. It has unique curvatures and, and contours and, and different types of uh, bumps and all kinds of weird, you know, just stuff. Your tongue's different than anybody. Your lip print is unique to you. The reason they use fingerprints is because thieves don't usually run around kissing all the stuff that they steal, right? But your lip prints also are unique to you, your iris is unique, and it doesn't even match your other one. It's that unique. Um, your retina is unique to you. Nobody else has a retina like you do. Your teeth are different than anybody else's, right? You have teeth that, that are different than anybody else around you. Even the way that you carry yourself, your gait, the way that you walk is different than anybody else. Isn't it funny how you can see somebody walking like a long ways away? You're like, oh, they're, I know them. And, and, and some of us, some people more unique than others, right, in their gait. But each person has a unique gait. Do you know what else is different? Your ears. Nobody else has ears like you do. It's kind of weird. We all got ears, but we don't have ears exactly like one another. And guess what else? Your voice is uniquely you. And, and, and these, are, these things are, are, are just intimate features and touches of us that tell us from a God who says, I made you, and I made you uniquely you. I made you exactly who you are supposed to be and that life is sacred. Life is sacred. And this is what we're dealing with as we enter into these issues and these topics that we're talking about. We have to bring in the element that God says these things are sacred. There's a sacredness to life. There's a dignity in life, right? Last week, we talked about the idea of, of, um, of, of theonomous law, the idea that there was law that, that, that doesn't come from people. Therefore, it can't be taken by people. It was something that our founding fathers understood as they laid out our Constitution and Bill of Rights. They said things like that, that, that people are endowed with certain inalienable rights, right? Understanding that those rights are given by their creator. Therefore, men cannot remove them or take them away. God says that who you are and who you have been made to be, that our, our genetic picture, our our genome, our, um, our, uh, our race, our ethnicity, all of these things are sacred. And we have been given charge to be co-creators with God in the command that he gave to go out and multiply and subdue the earth. Go out and, 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 and have children. Go out and 
propagate yourself, go out and grow humanity. And we are given the absolute privilege to co-create with God. And this brings us to this tension that we talk about in society, where we begin to understand what is profoundly right with us, while also understanding what is profoundly wrong with us. The issue of sin, that yes, we've been created in the image of God, and part of that image of God creation is the idea that we have an understanding of morality. We have an understanding of right and wrong. We know it's not right to murder. We know it's not right to lie or to kill or to steal or to do these different things against one another, and that is a global thing regardless of belief because it's an innate thing that God has put in us. He stamped that in us, but we also have this sinful nature that has this propensity towards doing really wrong and messed up stuff. And I'm guilty of that, and we're all guilty of that. And again, if we don't recognize the reality of our guilt before a holy and, and perfect God, then, then we have to revisit that. We have to really look at who we've really been, not how we just see ourselves to be or who we think we are, but who we've really be, been and what our actions have demonstrated us to be. And so we are a people and a culture right now that, that, that make this proclamation. We say that God is immoral because God takes life, right? Because people lose their lives. And, and when, when, there's, when there's destruction and there's devastation or there's a hurricane or a tornado or there's a car wrecks or an airplane crash and some people live and some people die, we say, oh my gosh, God, how could you let that happen, God? And we, we begin to place this idea that God is immoral because life has been lost. Yet we as a people in general, in our culture, are a people who stand on this point of saying when we give the privilege to be part of participating in life and bringing forth life, we choose instead to take life. And it's this amazing moral dilemma that demonstrates the tension that lives within the human being. So we say, we, we, we run into these struggles and we run into le legitimate difficulties, real difficulties in, in, um, in, these, in these struggles. And, and so... Um, we want to look at a couple of these, and it, it says that in Deuteronomy, we, we, we have this idea of like, well, well what about the, the concept of rape or incest? And, and, I, and again, please understand that, that I want to be completely and totally compassionate and recognize the reality of the difficulty of, of what that would look like. But the Bible says that fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall their sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So, so in other words, that if something is spilled over into somebody else's life, their, their life doesn't necessarily need to um, be the thing that pays for that. As a matter of fact, it's, it, it's an interesting thing that, that really only about 1% of abortions, even though we, we, we tout this as a reason why we want to justify this, about 1% at the most abortions actually deal with this actual case. And 75 to 85% of those who experience this choose not to follow the path of abortion because they believe that actually perpetuating violence within their body, again, wouldn't be a solution. You see, abortion is this struggle, it's this thing that we're faced with as a society, and, and we're using it as a means to deal with 
um, really inconvenience. When we really get down to it, about 75 to 85% of abortions are matters of convenience or inconvenience. There, and again, I know that, that life throws us these difficult things, but I want to point out a few things to us, and I want to, to look through um, a couple of things here. Uh, the other thing that, just to throw out really quick, too, is the idea of, of, an, of a child who, who maybe has a struggle genetically or something. And, and, and since uh, they've done a lot of testing and stuff, the, the amount of children with Down's syndrome continues to go down, down, down. And the reason is, is that people test and then they choose abortion. And, and the problem with that and the struggle with that is that we begin to say that we are the determiners of what life is worth living and what life is not worth living. We, we begin to play God and say, this is a life that's not worth living. But let me ask you, have any of you ever been around somebody who has downs? Have you ever got to spend any time around somebody who has downs? My daughter was raised with a, with a girl that had downs in her class. And you know what? She was an absolute blessing. She was a blessing to them. She actually taught that class of, of kids how to get outside of themselves and how to think about somebody else, how to include somebody when it wasn't easy or it wasn't convenient or it didn't really work out. You see, to, to begin to say that there's no joy in that or that that wouldn't be a life worth living or that wouldn't be a child worth parenting is to begin to make the determination of what lives are and what lives aren't worth that. And it's just a, it's a difficult place, and, and that's one. So, so in Exodus 4.11, it says, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who has made him mute or death, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, maybe God is trying to tell us that maybe some of those folks out there are there for us. Maybe, maybe part of their mission, maybe part of the purpose of their life is to help us to get outside of us, because the institutions that God gives us generally are to about getting us outside of us. Marriage, guess what? Marriage is all about not your happiness, not your, 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 your utopian existence, but about growing together as a human being with another person. It's not always easy. As a matter of fact, it's almost guaranteed to be difficult. But the difficulties come to grow us, to help us, to create in us something different. And guess what? When you have children, guess what? Now you've got to start living your life outside of you for different purposes, for different meanings, for, for something bigger or greater than you yourself. You see, God has these things in place to get us outside of ourselves. And I'm convinced that some of the people that are born into this world with great difficulties are born there to help us who maybe are blessed to have good health to get outside of ourselves. Anybody here ever come to the, uh, to the Christmas um, Easter seals thing that happens here? I promise you, I can't tell you enough, come to that, you will be absolutely blessed absolutely blessed by your time to come and to watch them and the joy that they have as they come and they sing and they, they do their, their, their play. It is absolutely a gift and I want to encourage you to come. There are 59, so since Roe v. Wade, since 1973, there have been 59,902,500 abortions. It would be the number one cause of death if it was listed as a cause of death. It would outpace cancer and heart disease. There are more abortions each year, over 850,000. And that number is greater than the number of people that we have lost in every single war that the United States has fought in since 1775. 
And that happens on a yearly basis, yet we turn our eye to it. As a matter of fact, if, if we gave a 15-second moment of silence for each victim of abortion, it would take 28 years to work through that. Thankfully, though, it's been trending down since 1990. So we're super grateful that that is the happen. But generally, abortion is a matter of unintended pregnancy and a matter of inconvenience. It does not, though, provide the person with a magical recipe or a magical clock that turns back time and makes them unpregnant. The reality of it is, is it leaves scars and it leaves difficulties and it leaves brokenness. And any counselor in the world will tell you the difficulties that they deal with in their office because of this and what it's done. It's not the, the world around us purports it to be this, this magic thing that just takes it all away. But in reality, certainly it doesn't do that. And it's because of that imago Deo, this desire for life that lives within us. So percentages for getting abortions, 0.01% uh, are a result of incestuous relationship. 0.14% were due to rape. 0.27% was where the woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. 1% there was a serious fetal abnormality. 1.48% the woman's physical health was threatened by the pregnancy. 1.67% the woman's psychological health was threatened by the, by the pregnancy. 20% the woman aborted for social or economic reasons. And 75.4% gave no reason. It was elective. More than one-third of the respondents to this, uh, it was a Guttmacher uh, survey given in um, 2017, and listen to this. More than one-third of the interviewers' respondents said that they had considered adoption and concluded that it was morally unconscionable option because giving one's child away is wrong. So what do we do, and what do we do as the church, and how do we approach this? Well, one thing that I think that we have to do is that we have to be profoundly for the flourishing of life. Not just saving babies. Not just marking our uh, gun stock because we saved a baby. But we have to be about the flourishing of all life. We have to be a place and a people that are helping to provide so that this isn't such a, a, a landslide event in the lives of people that leaves them crushed and overrun and not knowing where to turn to or where to go or where to get help or, or how to deal or move forward in the midst of it. You see, people generally who do this, they, they, they actually don't even really want to go through with it. They just don't see options. They don't see a path through this. And we need to be about dads. We need to be about moms. We need to be about families. We need to be about seeing not just babies given birth to, but seeing them thrive in thriving families, in thriving marriages, in thriving communities. And this is the commission that the church has been given. It's been given this, this commission to go out and to reach the world with the truth and the goodness of the gospel to go out in love and to love this world in a way that demonstrates what Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I wanna just read you some, some, some scripture that God says about life and about you and about how you were formed. And, and, I, and I hope that this, just let this sink in. 
because these are God's words to you. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Psalm 139, for you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Yet as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Do you ever think that God thinks about you more than that there are grains of sand on all the seashores? We don't tend to think like that, but this is what God says. Psalm 127, 3, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Job 12, 9 through 13, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the palate taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Isaiah 49.16, behold, I have inscribed in you the palms of my hands, your walls, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, your walls are continually before me. Luke 12, 6 through 7, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Job 31, 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him, and the same one fashion us in the womb. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Isaiah 49.1, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. Isaiah 49.5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Matthew 6, 25 and 26, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And Galatians 1.15, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased. You know the value of something by how much you're willing to spend on it. This is how we know value. And so... If you were standing outside of your home with all of your family and your home was on fire and it was engulfed in flames and there was, it was not good, 
you would not leave your family and run into the home to start gathering stuff. And the reason would be because you would recognize that it wouldn't be worth it to leave your spouse alone and your children alone to go and gather stuff. You would count the stuff as not worthy of your life. But if your family was in there, you would rush into the flames to rescue your family because their worth and their value would be high enough that you would regard that as worth your life to pull them out of the flames. And so if you want to know today how valuable you are, John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have life eternal. You see, God, Jesus, willingly ran into the flames. Our house was burning down around us and he ran into the flames and he gave himself as a ransom and as a sacrifice that we might have life. Not just life general, but life abundant. Jesus, Jesus came because we had fallen short, because even though we were created in his image, sin had entered in and it had brought with it separation in our relationship between us and a holy and perfect God. And on our own, we were stuck. We, we were without hope because all we could account for was, was our failure. And yeah, we'd been good and we had, we had done some certain good things in our lives and we'd been good people on a lot of levels. But you see, that's not what was at issue. What was at issue wasn't our good works. What was at issue was our sin. And you see, our good works can never replace our sin. They can never cover them up. They can never change them. See, if you, if you leave from Main Street at the first light... And when the light turns green, you go 70 miles an hour down Main Street, you're probably going to get arrested. When you bond out of jail, uh, you can't do this. It won't work. You can't go back to that same stoplight, and when the light turns green, go 10. Because the speed limit is 20 on the first part, if you don't know. And then you can't come back Tuesday and go 10 again, and Wednesday and go 10 again, and Thursday and go 10 again, and Friday go 10 again, and Saturday go 10 again, and then Sunday go 10 again, and then go before the judge. And when he says, tell me why you've went 70, when you could have killed some people in this town, you can't say, whoa, wait a minute, hush. You don't know what you're really talking about. Here's what you don't know. Yes, I went 70, but... Monday I came back and I went 10 and Tuesday I went 10 and Wednesday I went 10 and Thursday I went 10 and Friday, Saturday and Sunday. 70 minus 70 is zero. I'll see you later. We all know that that would never work. That doesn't work. It doesn't eradicate the fact that we went 10 and we were oh so careful for children and old ladies. It doesn't take away the fact that we went 70. And so this is our sin issue. And you have so much worth that God himself was willing to enter into time and space and history and give everything so that he could purchase you. And he invites you through that work on the cross, through his shed blood on the cross, into a genuine 
love relationship with himself. And if you're not in that love relationship right now with Jesus, the only thing holding you back is you. He gave everything. There's nothing left to give. He gave everything so that he could purchase you. But make no mistake, it's a genuine love relationship that he wants. And so a genuine love relationship requires two to agree into that. If only one agrees, it's called kidnapping and stuff like that. It doesn't work. To have a genuine love relationship, which is what God wants to have with you, it requires two of us to agree into it. Jesus has done what you could never do. He paid the penalty for death and sin. He bore sin in his own body. He became the curse so that you might have his righteousness. And he freely offers it to whosoever would call upon his name. Whosoever would call upon the name of Jesus who would admit and get real with the reality of their sin and say, look, I've done this thing, but actually I'd take your deal. I'll take your deal, your work of, 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 of salvation on myself. And when we do that, the Bible says that something crazy happens, that the Holy Spirit actually comes and indwells your body. That, that it's about, it's not really so much about the words we speak, it's about the heart that we have. It's about a heart that says, I want a relationship with you, and I want it worse than anything else around me. And I want you to be Lord of my life. I want your, your word and your law to become the rule in my own life. And when we do that, and we do that from a place of sincerity, and not a place of theological perfection, okay? Understand that. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just got to know you need a Savior, but that he's there. And when we ask, he comes in and he makes us new and he regenerates us and he changes our lives. And where we were spiritually dead and separated, we're now in relationship and God's word begins to become alive. It begins to flow in our lives. And all of a sudden there's a conviction of different things and habits in my life and stuff. And thankfully God goes through a slow process of that, but he begins to change us. And he begins to recreate our past. And he, he takes what we used to see as right, good, and, and, and uh, okay. And, and he reveals to us the wrongness of us. And, and then he helps us. He takes our past and he actually allows us to use it as a tool to help those around us. And that's the story of redemption. It's the place where God works all things for the good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Make no mistake, God does not make all, work all things for the good. There's a qualifier on that. It's for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes for them. He works all things for the good. So let's understand and know that you're not the only person in here that just went a little bit too far, messed up a little bit too deep, took it too far. You get that the world around you can have God's salvation, but you can't. That's not the truth. The Bible says that, that, that he's given everything that on the cross, he said it was finished, that it was complete. And that meant that every sin that I would commit, past, present, and still future, was paid for and it was bought by his blood. And he offers free salvation to whosoever would recognize their need for that. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you've given us life. We thank you that you have given us dignity. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you know us. Lord, I just pray for anybody who hasn't ever said yes into that relationship, into that love relationship with you, that, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would say yes, they would recognize their need, and they would move uh, towards you and say that the only hope that we have is you, Lord. 
And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given us life. We thank you that you have made us to be co-creators of that life, that you've given us just that responsibility and you've given us that privilege. Lord, help us to be truly human in the way that you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you that you've uniquely created each person here. I thank you for, for all of the diversity that's represented here, Lord, and all of the giftings and all of the goodness and the way that your spirit wants to move through us and use us as your church to affect change and bring life and goodness into our community. Lord, may it be so. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.